Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. I invite you to turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 as we read the verses 18 to 26. Hear the word of God. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. So far the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, there's a serious dearth in the church today of doctrinal knowledge. Many Christians today simply do not know what they believe and why. Last year, Ligonier Ministries conducted a national survey of the religious views of Americans and American evangelicals, and the results were shocking. For example, statement number three is as follows. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And an astounding 42% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Statement number seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Only 30% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Statement number 11, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And again, only 46% of evangelicals agreed. Statement number 13, God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Here the number was substantially higher, but still only 84% of evangelicals agreed. And finally, statement number 16, modern science disproves the Bible. Only 17% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. The conclusion of Ligonier Ministries was as follows, and I quote, The 2020 State of Theology Survey reveals widespread confusion in the United States about the Bible's teaching. Evangelicals, while exhibiting some hopeful movement in the direction of biblical fidelity, also seem to be influenced by the culture's uncertainty about what truth is. 
who Jesus is and how sinners are saved. These results reveal an urgent need for clear biblical teaching on the person of Christ, the gospel of grace, and the way that the truth of God informs our ethical decisions in everyday life, end quote. Well, today, with the Lord's help, I want to try to do something, at least, that will hopefully correct this trajectory. Starting today, I plan to deliver a series of messages on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, using as our guide the Belgic Confession of Faith. Now, the Belgic Confession of Faith was composed by a Reformed minister by the name of Guido de Bray in the year 1561. It's called Belgic because it was written in an area which is part of modern-day Belgium. At the time that Debre wrote this confession, Belgium and the Netherlands, also called the Lowlands, were ruled by the Roman Catholic King of Spain, Philip II. As a Roman Catholic, Philip believed that the Protestants in his territory were heretics. And consequently, he persecuted them savagely. Many were put in prison or executed for their faith. Debray wrote this confession in order to convince Philip II that the Protestants in the lowlands were not heretics or subversives, but rather faithful, Bible-believing Christians, and therefore should be granted freedom of religion. Unfortunately, however, the confession never reached the king. Due to persecution, Debray was forced to flee for his life, and after eluding capture for several years, he was eventually caught and hanged, after which his body was burned and his ashes were scattered over a nearby river. Well, although Debray died, his confession lived on. In fact, it became widely accepted by the churches in the Netherlands and was adopted by the Synod of Dort in 1618-19 as one of the three doctrinal standards of the Reformed churches, the other two being the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. And it remains one of the confessional statements of Reformed churches to this very day. The Belgian Confession consists of some 37 articles. These articles follow the order of the traditional six loci or divisions of Reformed systematic theology. So articles 1 to 11 of this confession deal with the subject of theology, the doctrine of God and his revelation. So there we find subjects addressed such as God's being, his attributes, and the inspiration, canonicity, and authority of the scriptures. Then articles 12 to 15 deal with the subject of anthropology, which is the doctrine of man, specifically his creation and his fall into sin. Articles 16 to 26 deal with the subject of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, his incarnation, his divine and human natures, the atonement and justification by faith. Articles 27 to 36 deal with the subject of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, And finally, Article 37 with the subject of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Now, from this outline, we can see the logical, orderly arrangement of this confession. We begin with God, then we go on to talk about the scriptures, then man, then Christ, then the church, and then 
the end times. And it's this logical, orderly arrangement that makes the Belgian Confession so useful and so easy to follow and to understand. Where one article ends, the next one logically flows. Now some might say, well, why should we study creeds and confessions? Are they not the words of men? And as such, are they not fallible? Would it not be better to study the word of God? Well, it's certainly true that we must study the word of God. That should be our chief focus and our chief delight. But God has given the church confessions, which we believe faithfully summarize the teachings of the word of God. So in studying the confessions of the church, we're ultimately studying the word of God. But where should we begin? Well, we must begin at the beginning. We must begin with God. That's where the Bible begins. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God. The scriptures begin with God, and so does the Belgic Confession. And it does so for good reason. If there's no God, then nothing else matters, and nothing makes any sense. And our Belgic Confession realizes that, and so it begins properly with God. We read in Article 1 the following. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Well, with this article before us, let's consider it under the theme, What We Believe About God, and we'll consider two points. First of all, what God is, and secondly, what God is like. First then, what God is. Who or what is God? How would you define him? What is his nature? What is his essence? Well, our confession provides a succinct definition of God in Article 1. We confess, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. Now, we confess here a number of things about God. First of all, we're confessing that God exists. Now, sadly, many people today deny that fundamental truth, and we call such people atheists. These are people who do not know whether they're, who do not believe in God. And then there are also people called agnostics. These are people who don't know whether God exists or not. Well, over and against these denials of God, we confess that God exists. And you'll notice that this is simply stated as a matter of fact. Our confession does not attempt to prove the existence of God. Now, some have tried to do that, of course. To that end, they have employed all kinds of sophisticated philosophical arguments. For example, there's the ontological argument that says that because man can conceive of an absolutely perfect being, and because existence is an attribute of perfection, such an absolutely perfect being must exist, and that perfect being is God. Or we can think of the moral argument. This is the idea that every person knows deep down inside that he is subject to a higher law and must give an account to a higher power, and that higher power is God. There is the religious argument. This is the idea that men by nature are religious beings. It's impossible to believe that this happened by accident. Someone made man that way, and that someone is God. Now, while some of these arguments are useful, in the end, we simply cannot prove the existence of God, nor is that necessary. We accept the existence of God as a matter of faith. The second thing we confess here is that God is one. 
Now, when we say that God is one, we mean that he is one in essence. Now, to be sure, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in a future sermon. But with respect to his being or essence, he is one. And that's precisely what the scriptures teach. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. James 2.19, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So God is one. The third thing we confess here is that God is the only God. That means there is only one God. There is no other God besides the God of the Bible. The gods of the heathen nations are but figments of man's corrupt and sinful imagination. They are nothing. The psalmist in Psalm 115 reminds us that they cannot speak, they cannot see, they cannot hear, smell, handle, or walk. And Isaiah in Isaiah 44 says that men testify to their own foolishness when they use part of a piece of wood to make an idol and call it God while using the other part to make a fire. No, there is but one God, and that is the God of the Scriptures, the maker of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord himself declares, Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. Fourth thing we learn here is that God is simple. By this we do not mean, of course, that God is simplistic. God is anything but simplistic. Instead, what we mean is that God is not composed of various parts. He exists in three persons, as I said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is one divine being. The Father is not a separate being from the Son or the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, but they are united in one holy and divine essence. And by this term, we also mean that there's no contradiction or even tension in God. The Father does not work at cross purposes with the Son or the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity work together. They are of the same mind, of the same will, and the same purpose. It also means that there's no tension with respect to the attributes or the characteristics of God. For example, God is not more holy than he is uh, loving and merciful. God is the sum total of all of his attributes. Fifthly, we learn here that God is spiritual. And by that we mean God is not Material. He doesn't have a body, therefore he cannot be seen or touched. He is pure spirit. Jesus says as much in John 4, verse 24, when he says, God is a spirit. Now I know sometimes the Bible sometimes speaks of God as having hands and eyes and ears, but these are what we call anthropomorphisms. These are figurative expressions intended to aid us in understanding who God is and how he works. And finally, we confess here that God is a being. And by that we mean he's not an impersonal force or energy like the force in Star Wars. No, he is a being. That means he is perfectly rational and has intelligence. He has the ability to think, to reason, to plan, and to will. Well, this is God. He is one, only, simple, and spiritual being. My friend, how do you respond to this? You know, we need to respond to the doctrine of God in great humility. The great Swiss reformer John Calvin wrote this, and I quote, As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. 
But suppose we begin to rise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. The point is, when we consider who God is, we cannot but humble ourselves before him. Secondly, we should respond in adoration. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6, the psalmist, after contemplating the majesty of God, asks this question, Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? Similarly, in Psalm 89, verse 6, the psalmist asks, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And in Exodus 15, 11, the children of Israel, after witnessing God's almighty power in destroying the Egyptians of the Red Sea, exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? My friend, is that your response to who God is? Do you fall on your knees in wonder, amazement, and adoration? You know, this is the only appropriate response to understanding who God is and how he has revealed himself in his holy word. Well, having seen who God is, what is he like? That brings me to my second point. After affirming the existence of God and defining his being, the Belgian Confession goes on to list some of his attributes. Now, what are attributes? Attributes are qualities or characteristics, that which makes a person or thing what he, she, or it is. For example, if I say that my daughter has brown hair and brown eyes and a great sense of humor and she's very empathetic, well, these are attributes of my daughter. Well, God also has attributes. He has characteristics that make God who he is. Now, several attributes of God are mentioned in this article. Now, you'll notice that this article does not list all of the attributes of God, for then the list would be quite long. Instead, it lists only a sampling, only some of the main attributes of God. And these attributes are of two types. They can be grouped into one of two categories. There are the communicable attributes of God, and there are the incommunicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God are those attributes that are not found in man. They are unique to God alone. Now, the incommunicable attributes that are mentioned in this article are as follows. First of all, we confess here that God is eternal. Now, when we say that God is eternal, we mean that he is above time. He has no beginning and no end. To him, there is only the eternal present, no past and no future. The psalmist expresses that in Psalm 102, verse 12, when he exclaims, But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Secondly, we confess here that God is incomprehensible. And when we say that God is incomprehensible, we mean that there are things about God, things about his being and his works, that we will never know or understand, at least not in this life. God is far above us in every respect. 
Paul exclaims in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Thirdly, we confess that God is invisible. By that we mean he cannot be seen or touched. The only physical representation we have of God is his son Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, but God himself is invisible. John writes in 1 John 4.12, No one has seen God at any time. Why? Because he is invisible. Fourthly, we confess that God is immutable. When we say that, we mean he does not change. God always remains the same in his divine being, in his attributes, and in his will. James 1.17 says, With God there is no variation or shadow of turning. Fifthly, we confess that God is infinite. When we say that, we mean he is not subject to limitations. He's not confined to time. He's eternal. He cannot be confined to space, for he's omnipresent. There's no limit to any of his attributes. God is unlimited in his knowledge, in his wisdom, in his goodness, his love, righteousness, and holiness. Sixthly, we confess that God is almighty. And by that we mean he can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. He is omnipotent. You remember when Mary asked the angel Gabriel how it would be possible for her to conceive a child when she had not known a man. And Gabriel said to her, with God, nothing is impossible. So those are the incommunicable attributes of God. But there are also some communicable attributes of God. These are attributes that are found, at least to some degree, in man. And there are several of them mentioned here. First of all, we confess that God is wise. Wisdom is the right and skillful application of knowledge. When we say that God is perfectly wise, we mean God uses his knowledge, which is infinite, to bring about the greatest glory for himself. Secondly, we confess that God is just. When we say that God is just, we mean he is perfectly righteous in his being and in his government of all things. In other words, whatever he does is right and fair. Thirdly, we confess that God is good. And when we say that, we mean that there is no evil in God. In fact, our confession states at the very end of this article that God is the overflowing fountain of all good. And by leaving that statement at the very end of the article, it's almost as though our confession is saying that whatever else God is, he is good. In fact, he is the overflowing fountain of all good. Now, these are some of the attributes of God. And did you know that each of the attributes of God are a great comfort to the believer? Think about it. Is God eternal? Then he will never cease to exist. He will be with us today and tomorrow and to all eternity. Is God incomprehensible? Then we may give everything over to him in the confidence and assurance that he has a purpose for everything. Is God immutable? Then his promises are sure and certain. He will never go back on his word. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Is God infinite? then we may go to him and lay our needs before him at any time and at any place. Is God almighty? Then we may believe that nothing is too hard for him. Whatever we ask of him, he can and will do according to his will. Is God wise? Then we may believe that God never makes a mistake. Whatever happens to us in this life is part of his perfect plan, even the things that cause us pain. Is God just? then we may rest assured that we who are believers are justified in his sight through faith in Jesus Christ 
and that one day he will vindicate the righteous and damn the wicked and unbelieving. Is God good and the overflowing fountain of all good? Then we may trust him and expect all good things from him. Well, this then is a very brief summary of what the scriptures teach about God. Let me ask you as I close today, do you believe these things? Oh yes, there are things about God that we do not understand. We don't understand how God can be three in one. We don't understand how he can have no beginning and no end. We do not understand how he can be both just and merciful at the same time. Nor can we form an accurate conception of who he is. Earlier we read from Isaiah 40, verses 18 to 26. And twice in these verses, Isaiah asks, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? That's a rhetorical question. So that means the implied answer is nothing and no one. He is far beyond our comprehension. He is unlike anyone or anything in the entire universe. But beloved, we don't have to know everything that there is to know about God. We never will. If we could know everything that there is to know about God, then he wouldn't be God, would he? Our calling is not to understand or to explain God, but rather to believe in him, to trust in him, and to live for him. And so I ask you, are you doing that today? Are you bowing before this great and mighty God? Do you believe in him? Have you embraced him? Are you also living for him? If so, then you must believe in and trust in and live for his son, Jesus Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul says it in Colossians. He is the exact replica, the exact image of his father. And those who have seen him have seen the father, as Jesus said to Philip. And so if you've never done so, I urge you to believe on him today. Still today, he calls sinners to believe on him. Those who have the Son as their Savior have God as their Father. And those who have God as their Father will live before him to all eternity. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. That's www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 
Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. That's 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can make a donation directly on our webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. For that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.